Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 10. Do you know someone in the Python community who recently was let go from their job due to the pandemic? What does the job landscape currently look like? And what are skills and techniques that will help you in your job search? This week, we have Kyle Stratus on the show to discuss how he's managing his job search after just being let go from his data engineering job. Kyle is a member of the Real Python team and has written several articles for the site. We discuss Kyle's career and the skills that he's developed, which are currently helping him in his job search. Kyle left academia to work as a data engineer. His background helps him to communicate between teams of scientists and engineers. We also talk about Kyle's recent article on combining data and pandas, and he shares some tips on pandas efficiency and also hints at some lesser known features of Python generators. All right, let's get started. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. Interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Kyle. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, I'm glad to be here. I wanted to have you come on the show partly because I saw that you were let go from your job recently and you were looking for work. And I thought maybe that would be a good opportunity to talk about searching for work in general as a Python developer, but also just what things are like out in the world right now looking for jobs. I don't know if you can give me a little background on what's going on. Yeah, sure. So on Friday, I was pulled into a meeting uh, early in the morning that I actually Almost woke up late for. I was like rushing into my workspace and 15 minutes beforehand getting dressed and everything. And I uh, was told, you know, because of the pandemic, uh, I was going to be let go from my position. Um, I was working at a computer vision startup called Affectiva uh, that focused on bringing emotion AI to the world. And it's still a fascinating mission to me. I'm still, you know, very friendly with everyone there. Yeah. I've um, been getting a lot of support from my former coworkers and things like that, which is, I, you know, one of the best things about working at a small kind of tight knit company where, you know, we're all kind of s- struggling through a lot of the pains of being a startup together. But yeah, unfortunately, basically everyone that was hired on around the time I was, which was right after a, uh, a big fundraising event, were let go. So a lot of brilliant scientists and engineers like myself all were let go as a, a pot of, uh, kind of a plan to uh, extend the runway. Wow. Yeah. I hear about these Zoom calls. I don't know. I've just been kind of just looking on Twitter occasionally and seeing other people talking about it. And I just, I I feel for the people out there having to to go through that, to be hoping that it's, you know, something that it's just like an announcement of what's going on and it's totally something else, you know? Yeah. This was, this was actually the first one in my career that I didn't like successfully dodge uh, by you know, seeing the signs and getting out because it's such a weird time. Like you don't really know what's going on and they've been fairly transparent about things and kind of financial situation and it didn't seem so bad or dire. And then this happened. So it was, it was kind of blindsided. I was kind of shocked, but you know, it was, the news was delivered with uh, what I felt was a great deal of empathy, especially considering some other places I've seen how people were let go. You know, considering we are, we were, I guess, an emotion AI company, you know, there's a lot of, understand which i think is kind of unique in a lot of these a lot of the engineering space 
you know, a lot of focus on emotion and empathy and kind of understanding where people are coming from and things like that. So, you know, all in all, it could have been worse. I'm thankful that I have kind of the, the network and people that I've known through my career and just in life in general that have really been there for me uh, during this time, which has been just, you know, mind blowing. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Maybe we could get into a little bit of, of your background and maybe how that's relating to those connections that you've built up over time. You kind of have a little bit of a different background as a Python developer. You went to school originally for biology. Is that right? Neuroscience. But yeah, I mean... Neuroscience. Okay. Yeah. Similar thing. We're in a different department uh, from biology. But yeah, so I've always been kind of an engineer at heart. But I was really interested, especially in, co- in college, about brain-machine interfaces. So I started in electrical engineering. Didn't do well in the first couple of years. You know, they have the, you have the weed-out classes. I was also just adjusting to life in college and having to study basically for the first time ever. I had like no study habits whatsoever. Very easily distracted by going to a school that was a lot of fun. I graduated the University of Florida, uh, go Gators. So <laughs> <laughs> sure. It was a really good time. But, you know, I struggled in that and trying to get into that flow. And then I realized, you know, I have to switch. So I decided to get on the other side of the brain machine interface problem and look at the brain. So I switched into psychology, which at the time it was just, you know, whether you want to do neuroscience, behavior analysis, therapy, social psychology is all in the same program. I was able to kind of tweak my classes. So they're very heavy on biology and things like that. I was recruited into this lab for grad school. And for having kind of a more quantitative background, I worked with one other colleague who who was actually had a master's in electrical engineering. And so I went through that. We're doing a good bit of coding academic level, kind of that sort of dialect of coding, I would say. A lot of our equipment, we had actually programmed directly. Our data analysis was all, you know, we'd write a script to actually do the analysis. And that's where it kind of rediscovered my love for programming. I had started talking to a friend of mine that was working, I think at the time he was at a financial services company, his like first job out of college. And we're talking about, you know, we're catching up saying, you know, oh, this is, how my job's going, you know, what are you doing? He was telling me about his like 35 hour work weeks and you know, his pay. And I was talking about my, you know, stipend and uh, my 60 to 80 hour work weeks, <laughs> right, and things like that. Sure. So I was like, wow, I need to, uh, I think I need to make a change because these student loans are just kind of piling up at this point. Yeah. Even with the stipends. So this friend of mine, uh, who I'm, you know, still in contact with, he's come up to Boston with his wife who they were dating when we were in college. So like, close to both of them they would come up and we'd visit they, they're in austin texas now he kind of gave me that first guide to okay if you want to switch your careers here's kind of a path to doing it and so for the next i would say academic year i was just all in doing that on any spare moment i had and this was on top of TAing classes grading exams giving exams uh grading homework and stuff running a lab full time, writing my master's thesis, which I actually had to do twice over. So oh even more fun. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it was just like, it was a lot, but if anything, it kind of made me realize like how much I could manage my time shifting from that intense environment to an environment that's still intense, but it's a generally a 40 hour work week. It was just like, it was very freeing. Uh, so he gave me this information that like literally changed my life. And I, I made it, kind of a mission for myself to pay it forward as much as I could. I could never directly pay him back for 
that and basically all the advice and everything that he's given me over the years. I mean, he's, I consider him my mentor because he's just, you know, quite a few steps ahead of me. He's at Amazon now, has been there for uh, quite a few years. What I decided to do is just pay it forward to other people. And I've had over the years, uh, people wanting to know about my story, like, okay, you came from like neuroscience and this, and now you're a coder, like what happened? And, you know, how can I do this? So it, it meant a lot to me to be able to do that same thing for other people, no matter if it took like three or four hours out of my day sometimes. And uh, because I was passionate about helping people because I was helped and it was such like a big impact on my own life and the trajectory of it. And the reason I tell that story is that it kind of goes into why I have this, I hate to say network, it sounds so like clinical and businessy. I just really think of it as a group of friends and colleagues, which are most of the time one and the same for me, that act as this huge support network and that have helped me land on my feet many times. And, um, you know, I've, I hope that I've done the same for, for them as well. Going back to, you know, kind of exiting academia. Yeah. I, I just started applying to jobs. Like, I, I think I applied to like 130, 140 jobs with very little experience. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Just like a couple of undergrad classes I took in grad school and intro CS class sort of things, uh, little projects and tutorials that I did. And like, I got exactly one callback. Um, so I started working for this company in Tallahassee, Florida called Adirant. It was, you know, my first job. It was, you know, not the best pay, but it was my foot in the door. And I was just happy to be like sitting on like, oh crap, I'm like coding and getting paid for it. This is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. The downsides were that I was in my college rivals town, but <laughs> you know, other than that, it was, it was really cool. I stayed in Tallahassee for about four years. I worked at Adirant, which was kind of enterprise crud software for law firms, kind of a client management system sort of tooling. Some interesting problems around like syncing and deployment across networks and things like that. A little bit after that, it was like, okay, I think it's time to make a change. And that was my first Dodge layoff, by the way, it was two months after that, they laid off almost all of their developers. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I was just like, oh, wow. Like I picked up on something and I shifted over to homes.com, also in Tallahassee. And that's where I learned like about data engineering. I didn't even know that was a thing. But when I walked in for the in-person interview and I looked at on the whiteboard, they had kind of a diagram of the whole um, ETL pipeline uh, that was the main focus of that team. And that powered the entire homes.com website and kind of all the related websites that they had at the time. I was like, okay, this is, this is what I really want to do. It's, you know, there's no UI stuff to, or graphical um, user interface stuff to worry about. Everything's really predicated on performance, uptime, you know, logging into the servers, deploying kind of manually and all this. And it was a lot of fun. And that introduced me kind of to the world of data engineering. Yeah. To take on that for just a second, can you talk about like, what is ETL and what does it stand for? Sure. So ETL stands for Extract, Transform, Load. These are pipelines that basically, the overall goal of them is to take one source of data, take all that data, do something to it and put it somewhere else. And which, you know, sounds really simple, but business constraints that get put on top of that. Um, and also kind of the... I don't know if constraints the right word, but kind of the environments you work in make it even more interesting. So you have to deal with a lot of data. You have things. So one of the business constraints was that we needed uptime like crazy. Homes.com, the way the pipeline worked is that our data sources were these independent 
um, MLS uh, multi-listing service. This is a, like a real estate thing. Yeah, sure. All these feeds that were XML, not standardized whatsoever. There are a few like different attempts that are all competing at standardizing their feeds. And so you have these like, you have all these different styles and things like that. And all these MLSs will have overlapping listings and updates and things like that. So you have these like really interesting problems to solve. And I just, I, I fell in love with that. Our pipeline would take in these like really messy data. It would clean it up, put it into a really nice kind of data model, uh, put it out to different databases. So we got familiar with a few different database technologies. We were using MongoDB for some things. We were using various forms of SQL for the more relational data. We were using Solar for uh, document storage and search. So we got to play with all these like really cool technologies. And then the, the language we actually used for the ETL, ETL pipeline was Perl, believe it or not. And this is, you know, 20, I think I started there in 2015. Wow, it's not too long ago. Yeah. Yeah. They, they were still using Perl, but uh, that was the, it, it actually happened to be the right tool for the job. I mean, Perl has some really powerful, you know, text manipulation tooling behind it. So that was a lot of what we did. Um, yeah, I really just enjoyed that sort of thing and continued on with that. A little after that, I got married. Shortly after that, my grandfather passed away up here in Massachusetts, where I am now. And I kind of started working towards moving back up here to be closer to my grandparents and most of my family. Started eventually after, I think in 2017, started applying to different places, got a job up here at a health tech startup as a data engineer. But then I started doing also a lot of work with uh, building kind of tooling around the various different needs of the science team that I was a part of. Uh, so we were like a small three-person, uh, first four, then uh, we went down to three-person data engineering team as a part of the science team. So we were kind of that interface between our data that came in both from the website and the other cool thing that PLM was doing at the time uh, was getting blood data from people. So I was on a team of computational biologists, more traditional data scientists, uh, traditional biologists that were used to like wet bench work sort of thing. And uh, it was really cool being back in that very uh, academic setting. It reminded me a lot of the things I loved about grad school with very few of the things I couldn't stand about it. Yeah. So you use the acronym, but it's it was Patients Like Me. Is that what it's called? Patients Like Me. Yeah. So this is actually still around. They were, um, they ended up being bought by, uh, I think it was United Health Group. Okay. And so where it started was it was kind of a website where people with chronic illnesses could get together and share their experiences. And what they started doing was having people fill out these different surveys that were clinically validated. There's a lot of transparency on why they were you know, collecting this data. It was purely optional. When we moved into the biological data collection, that was like a purely volunteer program uh, because these people wanted to learn more about, you know, their, they want to advance the science of understanding their whatever illness they had and were living with. And they also want to, you know, meet other people that were similar to them and share their experiences. And there was a really powerful community that was built there. Uh, that was really cool. And so we used, that's when I started using Python professionally. And I'd use it all the time. Like from when I started this whole journey, I'd been using it for projects and for interviews and things like that, because it's such like an easy language to kind of rapidly build stuff. Yeah, yeah. But to me before that, it was I had that stereotype of like, it's, you know, kind of a rapid prototyping tool. That's about it. And then I got there and saw the stuff that we had built already in Python. And then I started building more and more complex things in Python and really started learning about 
the power that that Python has that sometimes, especially then and the people I was around, like it, Python didn't get the credit for. Yeah. When you talked about not only getting into Python, but you're also, as you're moving from role to role, you're developing this interesting set of skills of, of solving problems for these other domains that you were familiar with, the domains of, you know, science and being able to talk in the languages that those people understand and learning how that translates into your engineering background, even though you didn't finish the program, that part, you know, sort of stuck with you and the programming sort of stuck with you. And you kind of translated to uh, being able to work with data. That stuff's exciting to me because that's, that's what I enjoy doing, like the, the problem solving part of it and being able to talk between all the teams within a organization. Yeah, exactly. And it's, that's where like my passion like exponentially grew. And I feel like at that position, and again, at Affectiva, there are these times, I, I think in, more generally, let's say, um, I think there are times in your career where you look back and it's almost like a light switch is flipped and you look back and you're like, I'm not that person and skill set, attitude, whatever. Like, I, I always liken it to a video game, like leveling up. <laughs> sure. And like, there's just like, there's all of a sudden the sea change that just happens. And I, I definitely have felt that at, Pretty much all my positions. I mean, I, I think at homes.com, it was discovering data engineering and understanding the potential that was there. And at patients like me, it was being able to communicate between these teams and take more of a lead position on the things that were being built. So because we were such a small team, if something needed to be built, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do this. And this is what I'm going to focus on for the next like two months or something. You know, looking back at that experience, well, I completely changed from my first day there to my last day and then the same thing at affectiva and it's it's been an absolute joy to like go back and see that yeah at that time i definitely felt like there's this leveling up where i understood more about python and i realized like i had this kind of semi-unique skill where i'm conversant in the language of scientists um in academia and i really find that sort of environment enlightening and energizing yeah they're fun people to talk to yeah, exactly. And like the the amount of curiosity for everything that I've seen in like every academic I've ever met, whether they're working in the industry or academia still, you know, there's a certain type of attitude and curiosity, just like thirst for knowledge, wonderment at the at the at nature and things like that that a lot of people don't have. And I, I just find something super invigorating about it. So I, I that's where I, I saw like that leveling up was like, oh, okay, I can kind of bridge the gap between scientists uh, doing these like heavy R&D things and like more production engineering because going back to earlier when I was talking about like that academic dialect of, of code, there was a lot of that and everywhere in there, I saw that at Affectiva too, there's, you know, when you're rapidly building something because you want to understand the data and get the insights, you know, you're not really worried about reusability or right. readability after the fact and you shouldn't be. That's not that's not your job as a scientist. That's the engineer's job. And so I really found a good niche for myself, kind of bridging that gap. That makes things more difficult in the job search, though, because not every company is looking to hire someone that bridges the gap between science and engineering. A lot, most companies don't have a science team. Right. It's been a uh, kind of double-edged sword in that sense. But, you know, I, I found kind of an area I really love to be in and love to play in. And I'm hoping to be able to find something kind of along those lines in my search now. Well, the skill that you are building more than anything is just the ability to go back to the idea of solving problems and build those levels of communication to to take the 
prototypical stuff that the scientists are building and turn it into structural things that are reusable and you know can become parts yeah. parts of the machinery for the business itself so just any of those kinds of projects that you can talk about and i think it translates really well because in the end as i think a lot of people are seeing the language uh, can change and can shift and you know we both love python but you know if if it's something where i need to work with a different type of tool I'm willing to learn it. I'm willing to get in there and, and get familiar with it and you know find out what the new features are, you know, hey, there's this new database technology, you know, what have you. And that's that's the part of it that, you know, like you said, comes from a bit of the academic stuff is the curiosity and the excitement to learn. Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned like uh, picking up different languages and things like that, because every job up until um, I came to Affectiva, before that, every single job I had was a new language to me. So in Adoran, it was C Sharp and the whole .NET framework. At uh, homes.com, it was Perl. At patients like me, it was just kind of getting way deeper than I ever thought I would get uh, with Python. Part of that, too, is like I actually love learning languages, uh, human languages. And I think having that interest and that curiosity translates really well to programming because uh, you kind of st- start seeing parallels to language features. So some languages I've you know worked on learning in the past, as, as an example, I like to use Japanese. When I was in high school, I was taking Japanese and Spanish at the same time. And I really like some of the features of Japanese. So like the articles that, or I'm sorry, particles that denote what part of speech the, pre- the previous word was. And to me, I was like, oh, this is so much easier than like conjugating a verb. Or I, I'm also learning modern Greek now because I grew up around it. My family's from Greece and I want my grandmother, unfortunately, has suffered from dementia. So you know, she's forgetting a lot of her English language skills despite being in the country since the late 40s. Wow. Yeah, so, you know, which which is a common thing. So to be able to communicate better with her, I've been getting back to learning it. And it has interesting features, but they're also kind of difficult in that you know, to denote the part of speech that a word is. A lot of times you're changing the ending. Sometimes you're changing the stem, too. And this is beyond verbs. Like, you have to decline nouns and stuff, which is, you have to remember so many different things. It has uses seeing how that feature in that language works versus particles as a feature in Japanese. It there's like so many interesting parallels with programming languages. There's a lot of overlap there that I think that if there are people that are interested in language and communication in general, like programming is a great thing to get into. I mean, Larry Wall, who invented Perl, was a linguist. Right. That's like like that's such a super important thing to understand and have an appreciation for. And I think the flip side of that, if you're a programmer, Learn about some languages. You'll you'll find a lot of really cool, uh, you know, like I said, overlap and analogies there that you might find really fun to play with. I've fooled around. You know, I had French in I don't know high school and a little bit in college, mm-hmm. and then I realized I wasn't going to use it. And I was living in Arizona, so I'm like, okay, I should really look at Spanish. <laughs> it's going to make way more sense. And so I started right. playing around in Spanish, and you know, I was surrounded by a lot of that culture in Arizona. And then mm-hmm. my wife is from Hawaii, and so we moved there. We both didn't have jobs at all. We totally took a chance, but her, her parents were there. So I said, I really should probably have another language. And their Japanese is a huge uh, one to, to learn. And so I started to right. to dive into that. And it structurally is very different. <laughs> so different from from all the romance languages. But yes, <laughs> I didn't get too far. Um, I ended up landing jobs that didn't require it. I have enough of it in my you know in my head that I can kind of think about it and just even translating it into the symbols. And yeah, so I agree with you. Like, I think that's a really powerful tool to be able to 
translate into other things. It kind of brings me to this question that I, I tried to answer a little bit last week. Mm-hmm. It's basically about finding projects that were at the reading level of this particular person. You know, they're kind of like at an intermediate level. And I think part of it is, you know, I, I suggested that you need to find those areas of the language that, that you're having a hard time with, you know, like decorators or was one of the things for me and, yeah, you know, uh, typing and these kinds of things that, that look foreign to you that look so strange. And then once you get the, that structural stuff under you, you can kind of build on top of it. Do you have suggestions for helping people like advance their reading level or finding projects <laughs> that are at their own reading level and programming? Yeah. I'm, I'm a strong believer in uh, kind of getting out of your comfort zone. I mean, my whole, career trajectory has been a story of getting way out of my comfort zone and just kind of putting your nose to the grindstone until it clicks. And, you know, I, I've been fortunate in that it pretty much always has. And it's, you know, it's been exhausting at times, but, you know, getting out of your comfort zone with that is always a help. It's to me, it's like working out or, you know, any sort of athletic pursuit. Sure. You need to do things that are harder, that aren't easy for you, for you to actually grow. And your brain works the same way. Skills work generally the same way. So I would suggest, you know, finding out projects that are beautifully architected. And, and it's hard to find those. Like, you can't judge that on your own. You have to be a part of a community. And I think, like, the Real Python community is a great example of that. You know, getting on the Slack for the for the members and asking about it. You'll get a lot of great answers. Yeah. I love to use Wiley. Speaking of blinking on names, that's, that's kind of my brand. <laughs> so uh, I can't remember. Someone on, it's another writer on the Real Python team. They have a tool called Wiley, and I've always used it as like a blueprint for my projects. Uh, but if you find like really well written code, especially in Python, like Python is such a great language for this. One, it shouldn't be too too hard to read. You'll encounter things that are going to be more difficult and out of your comfort zone, and that's where you're going to grow. Yeah. But yeah, if you're finding what I would do is just like look out for mature, well built products, especially in an area that are interesting to you. Right. That's going to help. Because you'll just stay, you'll stay interested in it. <laughs> exactly, you want to know why it's doing what it's doing, and you'll you'll have an idea of what it's doing. You just you'll start to learn the why and the how. But yeah, I'm, I'm a full. I'm very. Uh, I have a strong belief in going way beyond your comfort zone and just trying to understand it. Because you're not going to understand that first. It's going to be super difficult. But when you start reading like more advanced code, or if you're learning a language, more advanced language you'll start to pick up on things. You'll start seeing the patterns. And um, I think that, that that can only make you a better developer or speaker in the language. It's just like how immersion works for language learning. You go to a country, <laughs> yeah, you're not going to be surrounded by really easy, you know, low reading level, elementary reading level stuff. You're going to be, right. you, there's going to be advanced language going around, going on around you. There's going to be fast speakers. There's going to be signs with specialized language, but you learn the quickest that way. And I, I think that translates very well to code. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> I was thinking about that. You always learn uh, how to find the library and all these basic books, um, <laughs> yeah. which is like, yeah. how often do you do that? So, yeah, I was thinking going back to your your kind of journey. You got involved in a variety of different projects that are kind of a bit of side projects, and one I was thinking about was the the one that was based around memes. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's uh, that, that's probably one of the most fun things I've I've ever worked on. So yeah, I can talk a little bit about that kind of going back to like kind of a guiding belief is that anywhere you work, you're going to learn a lot, but there's always going to still be room to learn more, kind of flex your wings or learn something that you can bring back to your job. Or you can start a project, build into a business and, you know, 
become you know financially independent or whatever or you know destitute you know <laughs> it can go either way really <laughs> <laughs> so yeah um uh, around actually right before i got married that was uh october 2016 i started seeing on i, I used reddit probably way more than i should for my own you know mental health <laughs> and all that but I started seeing these kind of meta memes pop up everywhere where people were acting like Jim Cramer on Mad Money. Like, buy this meme now, it's getting popular. Or like, you know, get rid of this meme, no one's using it anymore. Sell, sell, sell. <laughs> and it was like such a hilarious concept. And I, I just, I love those. You know, sometimes, you know, there's certain classes of memes that just hit for you. And this was one of them for me. And so a uh, subreddit got made called Meme uh, Meme Economy, which is still around where people that was dedicated to just basically people role-playing is that they were stock traders buying and selling memes based on how popular they were. There's a discord chat set up and um, I started talking to some people there that, you know what, we should, we should take this joke way too far and actually build it. (laughs) Yeah. And so one of them, like the day the subreddit was founded, he bought the domain nasdang.com and I was like, that's freaking brilliant. And so because it was the market for dank memes. So like a group of us started chatting about it and kind of coalesced. It, it was like eight or nine of us. And we had, we were like, you know, let's, let's start building this. Like I, I was using my data engineering experience. There were some designers, uh, a lot. We we're all avid gamers. So like we're making this kind of like a stock market game. Yeah. Think about like, you know, paper stock trading and stuff like that. Uh, could be a really cool educational tool for people wanting to get interested in finance. And so we're like, let's do this. Like, this will be, this will be a lot of fun. And so we started working on it and we got like all of this, atten- like, uh, media attention. So one of like the first articles on us was by, I think it was by Motherboard, which is a, a vice publication. We started getting this attention from Motherboard. Uh, we had an article on The Verge. Cena interviewed us, um, and it was just, it was wild. And so we're like, okay, there's something real here. Let's let's make it real earth. So we started learning about how to like create legally a business, and started thinking about how we could monetize it to keep it running. Because uh, the way we we're building it, it was like super, it was pretty expensive to run out of our pockets. And so we, I started going to a local startup incubator in Tallahassee uh, called Domi Station, and they had this classes and i use their workspace and really great group of people and uh that's it was actually through that project i learned the power of your network and the people that you have in your corner because i went through this class with this group of people that were doing all sorts of different businesses and people were learning how to do like traditional restaurants and their tech people their apps being built but it was a really fun environment to be in and everyone was kind of out looking for each other looking out for each other and um you know, still to this day, I actually was just talking to one of the people I went through this get starting class with, John. He called me up out of the blue and I haven't seen him in a couple of years since I've, you know, left Tallahassee. And he just called in with some like great words of wisdom for me going through the, you know, this whole process of like losing your job and trying to find the next thing and all that. And it was like, it was really touching. But, you know, that was where I first learned the power of networks and of the people that you do things for or even just doing things for people in general no matter how it comes back, it somehow always comes back to you. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and it's it's just been, you know, and this uh, particular experience now has been like a great validation of that. But anyways, to go back to, to Nasdaq in particular, we started building it. I built, my focus was on 
kind of the business side and building the analysis engine, which what it did was this kind of like an ETL pipeline in that it read data live from Twitter, Facebook. Uh, we're building a Reddit source and all that uh, in real time. It was getting all these tweets and all that. It would search them for images that we were tracking. So we had a database with these images in it. We had this fuzzy search algorithm that we use uh, because memes change, but they're still kind of in the same class. So if you think of like kind of the standard older uh, memes that had impact font yeah. across the top and bottom, you know, that font would change, but it was still the same image, things like that. So we developed, we had this fuzzy search algorithm that we used to find for matches in our database. Then we had it within that whole process. When we found a match, we would, we had an algorithm that would determine like a popularity score. And then from that, we'd determine, we would aggregate all the popularity scores for a single meme that would determine its price in the game. <laughs> and then on the front end, we had an actual like stock market you could go into. You started out with GBP or good boy points. Uh, so those were, which came from, you know, that was, that itself was its own meme. And so we, we had this game and we had a community of people that were interested in it. I still get pinged here and there like, Hey, when's NASDAQ coming back? Like, we still want to use it after all this time. And so we, we started building it, got all this uh, attention. I started with, through Domi Station, I started going around and pitching it to get funding so we could go full time on it. And unfortunately, Florida, I don't know if it's still this way, but the ecosystem at the time was kind of very conservative around, you know, what kind of things they funded. For startup stuff. Yeah, exactly. There's not a lot of like tech money involved. So not a lot of people understood the value of games and also like how it could be transformed and used for other things. Because huh. you know, there's some different business cases you could approach with this technology. You know, if you're looking at the conversation around images, well, you know, ad campaigns, that's that's kind of a no-brainer, right? You can see how people are reacting in real time, how popular your actual campaign is beyond like kind of the traditional KPIs, especially if you're interested in shooting for virality on social media, which like everyone is still right. to this day. I think of the, the most recent thing with um, as Bloomberg, right? Yeah, yeah. Bringing all those people to create memes for him. Yeah, exactly. And there's, there's a really cool ecosystem there with meme and meme in creation and also you know usage there i mean there's a whole field of study on it that predates internet memes i mean the idea of a meme is kind of a general concept of a mutable artifact of culture and the internet has only accelerated that and so it's a really interesting space to be in from a nerdy academic standpoint which is where i kind of come in and also just from someone who uses the internet way too freaking much <laughs> like myself right. sure <laughs> But like the frivol the frivolity of it is what drove the interest uh, because we were like, you know, let's take this way too far, uh, this the stupid joke, and make it into something. You know, unfortunately, we weren't able to get the funding for it, and it kind of petered out. I'd love to get back to it and rebuild it and uh, modernize uh, some of the things that we did. But, you know, as of right now, it's unfortunately not in the cards. But from that, um, that whole experience, and this is why another like kind of guiding philosophy for me is always build things. I learned stuff that was directly applicable to my job, specifically in using MongoDB and the uh, aggregate queries uh, that it has. I was able to actually use that knowledge I used in building this to go back and say, hey, we have this, one of my coworkers was having an issue, this is at homes.com, uh, was having an issue with a query that was taking that just it wouldn't finish. Wow. Yeah. This whole process 
when we actually calculated out like how long it should take theoretically if it could run for that long it was it would have taken 140 days for something <laughs> we need to do every week oh my gosh <laughs> so, yeah, that's not gonna work out. yeah so <laughs> was not gonna work out at all so um i used uh some of the tricks i learned in building the analysis engine for nasdaq and i was able to eventually and I, I have an old article from like i wrote it in like 2017 on my uh, personal blog kylestratus.com about how i actually went about solving this problem because it's like oh I, I think i have an idea of what i can do to to handle this and so i used these aggregate queries we uh, were able in this kind of like stage sense so we do one change and see an improvement we do the next one see an improvement then we'll hit a roadblock okay we need to kind of re-architect the data and we had a measurement kind of on our side to where we could go to management and be like hey if we redid how we were ingesting this data then we could get this query to run a little bit we could run it faster so we went through this iterative process and i think after about seven i think it's like six or seven rounds of it we were finally able to get this process done in four and a half hours that's good i mean it's a <laughs> yeah a little bit of improvement. <laughs> it was how many hours was it originally? It was like oh God. yeah, I don't know if I could do, yeah. <laughs> do that in my head, yeah, but totally. yeah, okay, a ridiculous amount. But yeah, so building that was you know directly ap- applicable, and that also kind of opened my eyes and working kind of on the business side of it to the power of of networks and people, you know, doing things for them. Because you know, I'd be at the at the workspace and. You know, someone might have a question and I would go and help them for a while. And these people come around two years later and be like, hey, I actually think I might have, you know, a job you could look into or, you know, I have this for you. And it's really cool seeing how that pays off. Um, but, you know, there, there's also kind of a joy in just helping people for the sake of it. But yeah, so that petered out. And then towards the end, uh, what was kind of the nail in the coffin was I got this nice letter from NASDAQ. They discovered us. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, yeah, uh, change your name or we're going to sue the pants off of you for the rest of your lives. Oh my and uh, I was in some negotiations with the lawyer. And then um, I had a lawyer in Tallahassee that was a really big part of the local ecosystem there, Jake Kiker. And he he took it on for free and was like, yeah, man. Unfortunately, the best we can probably do is just have you guys change the name. And then I started kind of the process of moving and it just, you know, unfortunately, we ran out of, you know, funding and everything. So it just kind of petered out. But we still have the code. There's still hopes that we'll revive it one day and people will be ready to trade dank memes on the market. Yeah, you changed the name, right? You have a new version. Yeah, we we switched to DankX for Dank Exchange because we wanted to keep that kind of that history of the D-A-N-Q sort of thing. Yeah, it still feels like a, like, you know, one of the exchanges. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's good, yeah. <laughs> cool. Through this process, as you're out there looking right now, how would you say the job landscape is looking right now? Like, how is how is it different from, say, a couple of years ago and what's happening within the last couple of months? Yeah, so I, I have the benefit of being in uh, a tech hub now. So I, I live in Boston. The landscape is definitely different. It's not as, I would say it's not as vibrant. There aren't as many people hiring. Obviously, there are layoffs happening. Some big ones happened here very recently with like Toast and TripAdvisor. You know, some kind of obvious ones that would be affected by the downturn that's happening from the pandemic. But, you know, health tech is here. (laughs) It's huge here. Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of areas that are still thriving and it's still kind of a vibrant place to be. And then there's the, you know, increased acceptance of remote work. So at least as of right now, and I'm still in like the very early stages, I'm pretty optimistic 
there are a lot of very talented uh, engineers that are out there looking for jobs right now, kind of in the same market and different ones. So, you know, there's competition, but I, I still think, at least as of right now, there's there's enough room for people. And I think we'll see a lot of innovation. And I think that, you know, we also are lucky in a sense to have a lot of the larger tech companies here that can more easily weather the storm. So, you know, there's options. The startup startups are still there. A lot of them have frozen hiring. Um, I work with a uh, third-party recruiter that got me the original job at Patience Like Me, Jamie Chafel. He's He's been amazing and a great guide to kind of the landscape in Boston, whether I've actually used you know, went with his roles or not. So Affectiva wasn't through him. It was a, I had a warm introduction from someone I worked with that patients like me and still very close with. It's different. Like even the leads I've gotten from him have been different, uh, not as much volume. Uh, even on like LinkedIn, I see less kind of recruiter feelers being put out there. But I have seen a lot of people kind of coalescing around these like alternative ways of finding jobs. So, you know, there are people that, are on LinkedIn and their whole thing is like they like to do is act as a job board. And and then I've also just from you know the relationships I've formed over my career, I've had people that know really interesting people, founders and things like that, people doing really cool stuff in these really small startups that have been making it like wonderful introductions for me. And and I think the uh, the ecosystem here is very much uh, geared towards these kind of people that are really good connectors. Yeah. And I try to be that myself because if you're producing those connections as well as, you know, making use of them when you need them, they strengthen. And to me, it's like this weird analogy to, you know, how your brain works or something. You, you know, going back to my neuroscience background, you have this concept of um, heavy and learning. If the more you use certain neural networks, the stronger they get and the more efficient they get. And so the more that, you know, you form these connections, the more you work on these relationships and get to know people at a personal level and just make friends really like as silly and as simple as that sounds you know it those people want to look out for you and you want to look out for them when times are tough for them and we'll all come upon those times what i don't care how good of an engineer you are right or how you know brilliant of an entrepreneur you are you're going to fall on hard times and having those people kind of in your corner that know other people that are willing to vouch for you and you willing to vouch for them if you know that befalls them that's like a really powerful thing and with as vibrant of an ecosystem as we have here and the hits that it's taken, the fact that that's still happening and actually even, I think, more important now than ever is a really kind of optimistic thing for me. Like, you know, you can kind of see how people are banding together and helping each other in the midst of all this uncertainty and fear and uh, these difficult times. And it's super encouraging. That's cool. I, you know, I've, I don't know, I've had so many different kind of career paths um, but part of it was in the kind of the music world basically every gig i got in you know from being a recording engineer to a touring technician to eventually landing a job at a school f- teaching people about recording was all word of mouth um, was all based on reputation and people talking about me and you know building up those kinds of connections and it, you know it takes work to to get that to happen and like you said you got to you know meet people and build those relationships you know but also do work that you know people people would want to share it with you and you know yeah i hate to always say it but it's like people need to like you <laughs> yeah you know there's people out there who just think that they're going to be the greatest you know whatever and could be in the music scene or whatever you know they're an amazing guitarist but like nobody wants to work with them 
then they're not going to get hired. They're not going to be brought on, on board if they're going to be a problem kind of person. And I, I don't know if that gets shared very often in, in this world. Everybody, you know, doesn't always think of it that way. They always think about, Oh, well, the brilliant people. And it's like, well, actually, no, you know, there's a lot of people out there that won't want to work with, you know, somebody if, if they aren't a team player and want to be part of that and are, are into being, <laughs> <laughs> being part of a organization as opposed to being some kind of like soloist, you know, all the time. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I think engineering is like, is especially prone to this, like this, I, I think completely false idea of like the lone genius. Yeah. Or like, you know, you see the things about the 10 X engineer and like you, you can't rest on that your whole career. Like maybe it'll get you through somewhere uh, for a little while. But generally, if people don't want to work with you or intimidated by you and you're not someone that's giving back, like you're, you're not always going to be able to rely on being the smartest guy in the room or girl in the room. You don't want to be that. I, I mean, I think personally, like I want to be the dumbest person in the room because that's where I get to learn and kind of ramp up my skills. Right. But, and also at the same time, like, again, like you said, there is always a personality component to it, no matter what field you're in. But for some reason, engineering has a stereotype of, you know, the the lone genius that doesn't need anybody and can be temperamental and all that. And you really can't be. I mean, I don't care what kind of organization you work for. Like Some people will be like that. And I've encountered those people, thankfully, very rarely. And that's the other thing, too. I don't think it actually bears out in real life as often as maybe media or stereotypes might act like it does. But it's, it's still out there. Sure. I think I see young engineers that think that you know, they're the smartest person at all times and they don't necessarily understand maybe like the business aspect of things or the importance of that. Um, I see it. There's so many facets, man. Yeah, there really are. And I, I, I see that uh, there's a subreddit. I, I frequent, yes, career questions. That's mostly early career people. There's a lot of questions about like, oh, I, I think my management team is stupid for this reason. They're not you know, this isn't the optimal solution for this and that. And it's like, well, you're completely ignoring business constraints and you're working for business. Right. You know, it's not all objective, black and white sort of decision making. If it was, you wouldn't need, you know, managers, you wouldn't need product managers, you wouldn't need a lot of that. So I, I think that's something that if you're going to stay in the industry, like, kind of, you get disabused of that notion pretty quickly if you have it. But yeah, there's, being able to just like know and understand people and be empathetic is something that I, I actually do see it more in this industry than I thought I would. Uh, but I don't think it's, you know, fully kind of where it should be maybe. Yeah. But that being said, like there are a ton of great people in this field and most people and a lot of the culture too, like that comes from open source software. Um, and I think that's really been the guiding philosophy is, one of being able to help and share knowledge and wanting to share knowledge for free and kind of giving up the ego of I am the best and that's all there is to it. Of course, there are exceptions. But I, I think for the most part, people will grow out of that if they have that um, idea or they'll end up leaving the industry frustrated because they think it's their way only and that's not how it works in the real world whatsoever. Yeah, I feel like Python, you know, the community around it is definitely one of the most welcoming and are interested in helping each other in, in general compared to some other, you know, languages I've seen in other environments. Yeah. I just, just in passing, you know, so um, I love that about it. Yeah, I think so too. And I think part of it too, is that, you know, it's 
on its face, it's a, it feels like an easier language. It's less intimidating for new people to come into. And so I think those of us that have been using it for a while, like we, we see so many people come into it and, um, you know, you want to share the joy. I, I, I find a great satisfaction in programming. I, I find it calming and meditative and fun. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I enjoy programming. I know a lot of people like, oh, it's your job. Like, you know, you want to shut off and you go home. So, no, I, I have other things I want to build when I go home. I, I like building. Like, that's that's just my thing. And I'm fortunate that my field is something that, I'm, that I enjoy doing for fun and that it happens to be, you know, a fairly lucrative field. Going back to like the musician thing, I, I really feel for musicians uh, because I understand that saying like you want to get your art out there, you want to create, and it's it's so much harder to do that as a musician. I'm a big music geek. I'm a big metalhead. Uh, I go to shows like all before COVID. <laughs> I was going to shows like every weekend. Wow. I know a lot of the local bands around here, uh, concert promoters, and, and it's it's a, it's a great like really loving big community here of guys that like you know you wouldn't expect to be like that, but there's a really great like metal scene here. Everyone's super cool, but you know, you see these great musicians and you just see them struggle uh, for their art. And I'm, I'm very thankful that like the thing that I mostly, that I really geek out about programming, you know, I don't have to struggle as much as other people do. Yeah. There's, there's struggles and it's, it's a difficult field to be in, but I never felt like I had to be the starving artist to be able to practice my craft and, and make beautiful code. I tried starving for a while. <laughs> <laughs> it's overrated. <laughs> I yeah, I traveled the U.S. in my in my twenties in a in a Sentra nice. a pickup truck and with a, like a little trailer and you know we toured the U.S. and actually you know played some of the places in Boston yeah. um, back in the nineties <laughs> and it was it was interesting times but yeah I I don't know if I want to say I grew out of it but I I definitely grew fond of you know <laughs> of having a paycheck and having a other things coming in and yeah exactly i still want to share you know what i create yeah yeah definitely i think there's a lot of crossover there yeah totally yeah and that part of the creativity process is still there and i, I enjoy that part of it how did you get involved with uh writing for real python yeah so um when dan first purchased real python uh, from the original founders he put out a call i was following him i I think I just got Python Tricks, the book, and I'd been following him on social media and stuff and knew of him. I mean, his reputation kind of precedes him. And he put out the call for writers. And I was like, this is a great opportunity to kind of ramp up my own skills uh, when I'm writing articles and sharing my what I learned. I'm a very prolific note taker. Like every project I do, I have a ton of notes on it, whether it's like a single bug fix that I had to do or like I wrote up a whole new application from scratch. I try to keep notes on everything I do because I have a pretty terrible memory. And so writing about it really helps solidify it for me and making a narrative around what I did. And then I also have an archive so I can go back and be like, oh, hey, I did this three years ago. I forgot all about this. A case in point was actually the MongoDB aggregation pipeline stuff we talked about earlier. Yeah, I completely forgotten about that. And I was going back through my blog and I was like, oh, I did that. I forgot all about that. <laughs> that was super cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... I was already writing anyways. And I saw that and I was like, you know, why not give that a shot? So I reached out to him. I sent some writing samples and we talked a little bit and I joined up and just started writing. And so, you know, from basically the very beginnings, I, I was a part of it and writing articles. I started doing the uh, technical reviews, which were a lot of fun too, because you get to see, you get to see a lot of people's voices. And then for me, a lot of my technical review also kind of bled into uh, the next step. So this is probably getting 
a little inside baseball for real Python, but we have this like multi-tier review process for every article that goes through. And it's a very long and kind of arduous process. But if you look at real Python articles versus from some other places. Yeah. Stuff that you might find on Medium or whatever. Yeah, exactly. They You don't have that same level of quality and communicability, uh, I guess is a word maybe that could describe you know sure. uh, the articles. We have all these multiple layers. So I do technical review, which is like kind of the first step of the editing process. And it kind of bleeds into didactic review, which is the next step where it's reviewed for how easy it is to communicate the concepts that you're trying to communicate. And so what's really fun about that whole process is getting to see an author's voice, especially when it's a new author, and how they integrate that with kind of the overall style guides that we have and seeing how they grow as a writer. It's been you know really fun seeing someone that I reviewed when they first started versus now if they became a regular writer, seeing how it's grown, how much easier it has gotten to do their review. And it's it's super rewarding. Yeah, so I've been doing that since, gosh, uh, I think early early to mid-2018 was when I started, again, right around when Dan kind of started this whole thing. Cool. But yeah, I've been doing it ever since. So you have your most recent article is about pandas and doing merging of data frames. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, that one was, was really fun, but also extremely difficult to write. Being like kind of the place I've sat at in my jobs lately is that as an interface between science and engineering, I use pandas a ton. My my customers, my internal customers, science teams are like in pandas every day. That's like the framework to use for any sort of data analysis. And it's, it's powerful and intimidating and uh, there, there's just a lot to it. And so when I first saw that, I was like, okay, I can do this. And then comes the writer's block. I missed so many deadlines on this article. Thank goodness for Joanna and some of the other editors with how patient they were with me with that. Because, you know, there are these articles that you know a little bit or a good bit about. And then you start delving deep and realizing there are so many more layers like you had no idea even existed. Right. And this was one of them. And it, it took a lot to finally get it out. But when it was finally finished, it was probably one of the more rewarding articles that I wrote because I ended up learning a lot from the process of writing it and from developing exercises and things to uh, really hammer home kind of the concepts of merging. And, you know, it seems simple on on its face. All right, merging, it's database merging, fine. Join, okay, it's pretty much the same thing as that. Right. Concat, okay, we're just plopping two things together. But then you start looking at all the different options and all the different use cases and how people are using those tools and how they're expressing their data with it. And it's like, oh, this is going to be a long article. <laughs> how do I, how do I make it, you know, readable for people and keep their attention, but also, you know, help communicate the power behind it? Those sorts of articles are are super difficult to write, but they're they're some of the most rewarding. I think that's probably been one of the more popular ones that I've written. You might say, okay, this is going to be similar to something that I have a background in, which is SQL, but mm-hmm. you know, it it. In general, <laughs> there's all kinds of weird little rough edges that you're going to run into. Just in general, how you know pandas indexes stuff is is really kind of funky and unique. Yeah, you throw in like multi-index and stuff like that into it, or in hierarchical indexes, and it's just like it's like okay, I just made it more difficult by an order of magnitude. <laughs> <laughs> right. You kind of cover three key concepts of uh, merging and then joining and then 
concatenating. I think of like most people starting with the idea of merging and using those keywords of like inner and outer and left and right joins and stuff like that. What are what are some of the key things you have to pay attention to? Yeah, so um, with this article, I actually uh, starting with merge is a uh, a very conscious choice in that I want to start with kind of the the more difficult part. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier of like kind of if you want to ramp up your reading abilities, you go beyond your level. And I think merge itself, whether you're doing it in Pandas, SQL, you know, whatever, that's going to be like the more difficult one because there's so many different options. Uh, there's a lot of set theory behind it, which is why I wanted to start with this. Uh, I think, you know, structure is such an important part of, of writing, especially when you're writing things to teach other people. I, I thought this was kind of the right way to go start with like the most difficult part of it because uh, when then when you go to join and concat it's like it's almost feels like child's play compared to it uh so yeah you have all these different options so you have the inner outer left and right joins and when i see this i always think of the venn diagrams if you look up like sql join venn diagrams that's uh and i actually made some for this article to try to illustrate what the joins will result in. Because I think if you think about it that way, the the whole idea of like an inner join versus an outer join or a left outer join yeah. starts to kind of become clearer. In the SQL world, it's never going to be clear because different of plain left join in SQL, if you're using like Postgres or MySQL or Oracle's PL SQL, all can mean different things. Uh, playing like left join could actually be a left inner join or a left outer join or could actually you know there, there's just there's some weird things that happen so at least in pandas you have like the vocabulary is just unified yeah so you have like a lot of options with with merge that allow you to do a lot of neat things so in this article a lot of the projects are kind of built around climate data from the national oceanic and atmospheric administration cool you know, some it's real world data that you can kind of play with and understand, and it becomes kind of easy to demonstrate the different types of joins you can do by by using this data because they're it's super relational, which is really important when you're kind of putting together data sets, uh, especially with merging. There has to be you know some kind of connection, obviously. Yeah. So you can kind of really easily see the results of outer joins, a full outer join versus a left outer join, and when you're going to want to use those different things. And that's only one of the options. I mean, that's the most important one that I think anyone using pandas and merging data sets with it will encounter. And then the next one would be on like this. This tells if you want to merge on a certain column, you know, make that your merge key, then use this index. Otherwise, it will just, it will use, I think, basically every column that has the same name to merge on, which you don't always want. You probably don't usually want it. There's a lot of power behind uh, all the options that are available to you, but with that power comes like, you know, you you have to be sure, you have to know your data really well. And I think the examples that are used in this article kind of help with visualizing, better visualizing what the results kind of look like without using data that if you're not familiar with the data, you look at the results and be like, okay, yeah, that looks right. And it'll be like completely wrong. You just like use the wrong join and you accidentally drop like you know five thousand columns or, right. or rows or something by doing an inner join instead <laughs> of the outer join that you meant to do and you know getting uh familiar with that sort of set theory and a way that you can actually apply in the real world I, I think it pays off in spades yeah cool i think that having a really good set 
of data, if you will, <laughs> to start with is, you know, kind of crucial. It goes back to what you were talking about with your, you know, ETL stuff of, you know, cleaning data and getting it prepared to, to do any of this sort of stuff. Yeah. One of the things I actually struggled with in this article was finding a really good kind of clean data set to work with. I, I was kind of perusing data.gov, which is a good kind of jumping off point for data that various government agencies from the local level all the way up to the federal level uh, in the U.S. collect. And so there's a lot of cool data that are really fun to play with. There's like, you know, traffic data, which is something that's super interesting to me, which is probably just from playing way too much SimCity growing up. Uh, <laughs> <Sure. but laughs> like traffic data and how that kind of maps to like, you know, the idea of a graph is super cool to me. I, I don't know why like routing things, infrastructure, pipelines, and that's probably why I instinctually like fell in love with data engineering are all like super fascinating to me because how you route things is so important at like every level of life. And so there's a lot of really cool data about traffic flow in data.gov, but finding two sets that have some kind of relationship they can actually join on and demonstrate this with is a lot harder. It took me probably a good couple of weeks of, you know, just looking at these raw CSV files and be like, what's this? And squinting at it, you know, turning my laptop around. Like, can I actually do something useful and teach something with this? Yeah. Yeah, sure, I can build a cool project with it, but um, will it communicate what I want to communicate? All right. And that whole skill, like, I had no idea how important that skill was until I started writing for real Python. You know, that that bled into everything else in my career um, when it comes to mentorship and you know, teaching others or even just showing my work. Yeah, I, I agree with that, too. It's like having concrete examples to share with, again, you're working in environments where you potentially have owners or managers or other people that are removed from the two teams that you're part of, which are, you know, the scientists and the, and your engineering data kind of teams, mm -hmm. you know, and then having to like share something that makes sense to them that like, this is usable. This is why you should invest in this. This is why we should, <laughs> you know, put resources here and like figuring out ways to communicate that is a whole unique skill set. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and by teaching it, it's like a huge part of it, you know, kind of like going back to, to what you're saying with building in the article. Yeah, I mean, I, I think teaching is also one of the best ways to learn. One, you have to know whatever you're teaching very well. But the other thing that's really, I think, stimulating about it is the questions that you get. Uh, and this was one of the things I loved. Even going back to grad school, I public speaking is like terrifying for me, being kind of an introvert and all that. <laughs> but I forced myself to do yeah. it as much as possible because, it's a, one, it's an important skill. But two, I, I actually absolutely love Q&A portions of, of talks. Whether I'm giving talks on things I've built or I'm building or on research I was doing back in grad school, that question and answer portion is one, you know, you that's where you know if you actually know what you're talking about. And two, it's really stimulating in that you're in a room with uh, very smart people, whether you're giving a tech talk, science talk, whatever, um, that are interested in what you're doing. They're there to, to hear from you. And so that Q&A period is actually really fun. And we kind of get that with the comments yeah. um, at Real Python. You know, they're saying, you know, true. Any, any sort of thing you put on the internet, don't read the comments. But uh, the community is, is really, really great on Real Python and, you know, very intellectually curious and wanting to know more about what you have to say. And uh, that part of it, I think, reinforces the things that you learn on the whole path of either creating the material or just in your career from using it. 
And it allows you to kind of look at it from someone else's perspective and understand how you know someone else might perceive your work. Yeah, definitely. And and that that's like super invaluable because the more perspectives you can kind of understand and empathize with, the better whatever you create becomes, I think. Uh, because especially with coding, like I've, I've always said this thing where, you know, your code is communication, right? Like really good code can communicate exactly your intention to both the machine and to the person that's going to read your code, whether it's you six months down the line, another teammate, a new junior member of your team or a manager or whatever, uh, code is always communication. I don't care how like optimized it is to communicate to the machine. If you can't communicate it to another person, it's worthless. Yeah, yeah. And so these kind of Q&A things with the articles or with talks, I, I think they help kind of refine code your code as a craft that you practice as part of your life. It's so exciting too. I mean, typically, you know, like at the end of a talk to have actual people you know, they listen, they paid attention, you know, yeah. they're, they're asking questions based upon stuff. It, it's, it's kind of frustrating when you put something out there and, and then it's just silent. Yeah, exactly. It's very frustrating. So you, you know how well you're performing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I actually gave a talk back in October. Uh, Affective every year uh, puts on this emotion AI summit, which is a really fun time. And I gave a talk about kind of the platform that you started to build out which kind of was to manage our whole data lifecycle. So at Effectiva, we actually collected our own data. We have a warehouse out in one of the suburbs of Boston uh, where we take people, put them in a car with all these cameras and stuff, drive around and, you know, record how they reacted to things and find out when they're frustrated. So we'd collect this data <laughs> and it would drive around Boston. It's really easy to get frustrated. Yeah, that was one fun, funny thing when we were there. It has to be the city that I've heard the most horn hawking in the yep. world. Uh, I mean, maybe not the world, but like in, in the US uh, that I'd been to. And to give you a flip side of that, if you were to honk your horn in Hawaii, it's going to be a fight. Yeah. <laughs> no one does that. Exactly. Yeah. I grew up, uh, so I'm originally from this area, but I moved to uh, a little beach town in North Florida when I was like 11. And it, it's kind of that same thing, right? Like it's, it's very laid back. It's slow, you know, a slow kind of life. That's kind of island life. And then on top of that, you're in the South where things are, you know, kind of just slower and more relaxed in general. Yeah, exactly. And this part of Florida was still like, is like culturally like a rural South area. And so, yeah, like honking and all that's like unheard of. Then you come here and like, if you don't speak the dialect of horns, you're not getting around. Well. <laughs> <laughs> not, not in Boston yet. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, yeah, we, we collect all this like really interesting data. You know, we have internal labelers. We interact with third party labelers to actually understand people's facial expressions uh, so that we create this training data for um, the scientists to actually create the models that would predict, you know, given a video feed of someone would track their face and predict what they're kind of feeling at that time as they're driving around. So we started building this like whole platform to manage this because it was kind of ad hoc and, you know, the teams were kind of siloed off from each other, which caused a lot of slowdowns and all these problems. So I gave a talk on how we were planning on building that and like what we wanted to build, why we were going to build it, the struggles that we've, we've faced and like how we were going to go about actually solving those. And when I got up there, I mean, I was super nervous for like the week beforehand. I mean, giving a talk is always, you know, stress inducing, even more so when you've only been out of job for a couple of months. And now you're talking about this huge platform that you and one of you and a couple of other people on this tiger team are going to build 
But I get up there and the room had filled in. I saw like as soon as I was about to start, my entire team had filed in. And that was something I, I got a little emotional because like I see all these people that I've worked with. Um, half of our actually probably three quarters of the team at the time were, was in Cairo, Egypt. And a lot of them came to America or to Boston for the conference. And I saw them all file in and, you know, they enjoyed it. I had a lot of good questions from them and then from the audience in general, like people were super interested in what I had to say. And that's when, you know, I think you can feel like your work and what you're doing is really validated uh, when it captures that attention, that interest of people on it. Yeah. Super rewarding, especially for someone like me that puts so much stock into what I build and what I create. You know, it's, I, I look at it as like, it's probably the same thrill as, you know, like you as a musician would have when you get up on stage and then after, you know, people are coming up and talking to you about your music and, you know, buying your merchandise and, you know, all that fun stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I get, the, I, I, I see that same excitement when I go to a show. And, you know, I start talking to some of the bands I see or, you know, I've become friendly with a lot of the local bands, and you know, their members and stuff. And, you know, there's just this excitement that people that I think anyone that creates anything gets people like actually interact and enjoy and get something or just have any uh, passing interest even in their work. Yeah, There's this connection that's made there. That's just like super cool. And um, I think that's something that, I, and you can probably confirm or deny this, like that's something that drives the artist or the craftsman to kind of sacrifice for, for what they create. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm already seeing it with the podcast, you know, like yeah, uh, putting out the, the idea of like, Hey, you know, I have the whole thing where you can ask a question and you can send stuff in and, and topics that I want to cover. And just even the handful of ones that we've received so far have been just so meaningful for, for me and Dan, to look at and we're like, Oh yeah, we got another awesome question. <laughs> you know, I was just going to say it's funny because even little things like that, like interacting with the audience. Yeah. And I don't like saying the audience because it kind of others them, but like interacting with the people who are consuming and getting something of value out of whatever you're creating. I, I think for being on the other side of that as the audience, like for me being just a huge music geek and loving it and live shows and stuff like that, it, it, it means a lot to the fan or the, the audience to be able to get that sort of interaction and feel like they're heard by people that they definitely look up to. Like, I mean, for like for me with, the, uh, with musicians and stuff, like I see these guys that are, you know, my age, maybe younger, maybe a little bit older that I'm like, man, I like that stage presence, that creativity, like I look up to that, you know, I, I think that means a lot both for the creator, but also for the consumer or the fan. Uh, to be able to have that interaction. Yeah. Yeah. That connection. That's cool. So I have a couple of regular podcast questions. Yeah, sure. What's something that you're excited about in the, the world of Python? Yeah. So uh, for me, like I've been absolutely thrilled just seeing how much Python has kind of grown and penetrated every sort of industry. So I, I see it very much by being kind of on the more research data science side and machine learning side of things. But Python is really becoming like this lingua franca, I think, of science in general. I mean, before you had like MATLAB and R and stuff like that. But I think Python's really like taking over there too. And seeing it, seeing a language that was once seen, and I, I mean, I've heard, I've had managers express this um, opinion, like seen as this like kind of slow toy language for maybe prototyping things. And that's about it. To it being taken like really seriously at all, at pretty much every level uh, has been 
something that's really exciting to me. Yeah. And also just seeing how it kind of, it allows a lot more people to get into the field and discover like kind of the love of programming as a craft or as a pursuit. I, I think Python enables that a lot more than some other languages might. And it, it brings it to a lot more people and just seeing that growth and people having fun programming uh, is like one of the most exciting things for me. I'm really big on like mentorship and teaching and also learning from you know those I'm ostensibly teaching. I, I think it's, it's kind of, it allows a lot more people in on this wonderful thing that, that a lot of us have access to. Yeah. That's, I think the reason so many of us are here, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> so what is something you thought you knew about in Python or that you knew in Python, but it turned out you were wrong about it? Yeah. So this, this kind of goes back to the idea of Python as the rapid prototyping kind of scripting toy language that you start something with and then use a more serious language to build the actual thing you want to build. Like I was completely wrong about that. I like just seeing the kind of advancements in science that Python has enabled by being a language that one has a lot of people that love it behind it. So like if you're working on something like PyTest or, you know, TensorFlow or Pandas, if you're you're kind of working away really hard at these more or less open source tools, you have to love the language. And seeing that like that love and that that interest kind of be expressed through these tools and being able to kind of accelerate science that's being done, the pursuit of knowledge and understanding the world around us, ourselves, and seeing the role that Python plays in that. I was so wrong about Python when I first started using it as like, you know, just a way to learn how to code in general. And uh, I'm really glad that I was because Python is a great language. Like I feel myself when I'm writing it, I I feel like I'm talking, you know, I'm I'm just having a conversation like, like we are right now. I'm having a conversation, a conversation with myself and my machine. And it's very easy to kind of get into that flow state that I think we all kind of strive for when we're working. And it's a wonderful place to be. And Python really enables that. And, by doing so and doing so in such a kind of accessible way, it's advanced so many fields so far, you know, a fairly short time. Cool. So this is a new one, something that came up on the Slack at real Python the other day. And the person said, do you have a, a trick or a technique or a tip about Python that maybe some people are unaware of kind of a, some hidden Python skills? Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, I think I have, I have two that kind of come to mind. And I mean, it's not like they're, I wouldn't say they're hidden. I mean, they're in the documentation uh, for those of us who actually read documentation, which usually isn't me, but you know, sometimes. <laughs> right. So the first one is kind of relate is more specific to pandas. I've seen it a lot in this code that I've read. There's a lot of times there's this instinct, but just as programmers, like we kind of think in loops and iterations and things like that. Sure. And so with Pandas data frames, there's this instinct. And I mean, I'm still very guilty of this myself to, you know, iterate over the data frame and make the changes row by row and, you know, all this. And Pandas itself is actually has these very powerful tools where you don't need to iterate over a data frame. You can kind of, it doesn't matter how like specific the changes you need to make are. There's always a way in Pandas to do things over an entire data frame kind of in one go without the slowness of iterating or even worse of having like nested for loops to kind of get to the data that you want. Nine times out of 10, you don't need to. 
it's there's a way to to work across the entire data frame kind of in one go. So if you're someone that's working with pandas, whether you're new to it or old to it, and you're thinking of iterating through your data frames or any sort of data set that you're working with, chances are you actually don't need to. And I would recommend just like kind of digging into how to reframe the problem that you're working on to be able to make the changes you need to across the data frame as a whole. And then my second one is another thing that's not quite hidden, but the kind of advanced functionality of generator functions. I actually learned about these writing um, my real Python article about generator functions and generator expressions in the yield statement. So with generators, you get a few cool uh, functions, I guess methods, because they're instance methods, on your generator. So these are send, throw, and close. Yeah. And they let you do like really powerful, cool things. And as like a data engineer, I find, you know, chaining together these expressions really cool. So, uh, yeah, you, with these, with generative functions, you can build a pipeline in just a few lines of code that will kind of basically be the same thing as an ETL pipeline. You can create an ETL pipeline in pure Python if you want to using generator expressions. And then on top of that, like using send to, kind of control the flow of your generator uh, using throw to to throw errors when you know some bad data goes in or something like that or close using these uh, you can create coroutines and all this like really neat functionality that um, I think sometimes gets taken for granted because not a lot of other programs have or programming languages have features that are comparable to generator expressions. It's certainly not as easy to do as as Python does. Like, you know, just throwing in a yield statement or wrapping a a comprehension in parentheses and sub brackets. You know, it's it's a really simple tool that's easy to overlook. And as a kind of consequence of that, I think the advanced functionality gets overlooked as well. So I definitely recommend people to to play with those. Get a, a data set that you want to do a bunch of fun things with, and you know, use generator expressions uh, to do that in an efficient way. Yeah, I, I enjoyed your article on that. Um, I hadn't played around with that kind of functionality inside of it of sending <laughs> and throwing, you know, stuff out of it. So it's cool. Honestly, like before that article, I I hadn't either. I I picked up the uh, article uh, on our Trello board, and I was like, oh yeah, I can do this. Like I, I use generator expressions. Like I get it. Work with a lot of data, so yeah, it should be pretty easy. Then I was like, I was going through some of the Python documentation and looking at more advanced ways of using generators because I wanted it to be comprehensive. I was like, I had no idea any of this existed. Like, you don't know what you don't know right. uh, until you have to write an article that a ton of people are <laughs> going to be looking at every week. You know, and you want to make sure you cover all the bases. And then when you're coming up with a way to actually communicate how to use these things, it, it was really enlightening writing that article. It was one of those that I really had a fun time writing because you know, I thought I knew the ins and outs of generators. And then all of a sudden I discovered all this functionality that I'd never used before and could, you know, put into use in my career. Oh, wow. I didn't even realize these really cool features existed. So, um, yeah, I had a blast writing that one. That's super cool. Hey, I want to thank you for taking so much time to talk to me. Yeah, I I had a blast. It was was a real pleasure to do this. And I I think this is the first podcast I've ever recorded. So it's been a lot of fun. Oh, that's awesome. Well, Good luck with your search. I hope everything turns out good and you can stay working there in Boston. Thank you. I hope so too. Okay, cool. I want to thank Kyle Stratus for being my guest this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast 
in your favorite player. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.